You are about to listen to the full interview with Jeremy Holden. Sections of it were originally included in our Oring Pendek episode. Jeremy Holden is a photographer and naturalist who has spent his life photographing wildlife in Asia. We learn more about his experience seeing the Oring Pendek and what he is doing now to continue the search. We hope you enjoy it. Yeah, so I, I, I started off as a, a naturalist as a, as a very small child. I had like a museum in my bedroom at, at age four. I've always had a, a great interest in, in natural history. And that kind of translated um, into photography. I started, um, I think when I was in my teens, I became a, like an amateur wildlife photographer. Then I, um, I did a photography course, which then went on to do a degree in photography. So I, I don't have a, um, a biological degree, I have a, a photography degree. And through that, um, when I finished university, I, I, well, I continued my traveling. I was traveling before and, and during university as well to, to Asia, mostly. Um, I, I continued that, went to Sumatra in 1994 and got involved with Yoram Pendek, which um, changed my life and, and kind of gave me the break I needed to, to follow this as a career. The Oring Pendek isn't as well known as, say, like Bigfoot or Yeti. Um, could you give an overview of what the Oring Pendek is for people who've never heard of it before? Well, we don't we don't actually know for certain what it is. What we do know is that it's a an ape, a large ape. Whether it's um, part of a great ape or lesser ape, so whether it's related to orangutans or whether it's related to gibbons, we we don't know. But it's um. You know, it's, it's, it's really, I guess, the, the Indonesian version of um, the Bigfoot you have in the United States, except it's a much, much smaller creature. So it's a, it's a large-bodied ape um, between 1 and 1. 1.5 metres is, is the usual size reported. It's a biped. It's covered in hair. Um, it's clearly an ape. It's, I don't think it's... Um, got any real relation to human beings, um, uh, you know, any more than orangutan or um, um, chimpanzee would have. So, yeah, it's, it's um, a kind of a, a, a jungle Sasquatch in a way. How did you first hear about the Oring Pendek? Well, I, I had been interested in this kind of stuff, obviously, um, since childhood. And I knew, you know, I knew about the Yeti and Sasquatch and Almaz in, in Mongolia. In fact, um, I knew many of these these creatures about the world. It seems almost everywhere has one. But I but I had never heard of Oren Pendek when I arrived in Sumatra in 1994. And it was while I was there, I um, I met someone who was looking for it. And I remember rather smugly telling them that uh, it was clearly a, a forest or, or a myth, you know, a local myth. And that almost every culture had a similar kind of story. I mean, even in England, going back to like the Green Man, you have this um, this notion of people that came or, or that live in the wild. And that's what I thought Oren Pendek was. But um, I was wrong. And this, this person you met, was it Debbie Martyr? Uh, was she the one looking for the creature initially? That's right. Um, well, Debbie was a, uh, she was actually a journalist um, working on a London, she was the editor of a London paper. And she first heard about Oren Pendek in 1998, uh, 1989, sorry. 
from from a local guy that um, claimed to have seen one. And I think, um, I mean, the stories weren't exactly new. There's, there's been um, reports of these since the first British explorers were in Sumatra, like 1780s. But it's something that had really been ignored by the um, biological community and researchers. But Debbie, I think as a journalist and being very experienced in listening to people telling stories, when she heard this guy tell the story about when he saw the Oran Pendek, she thought, you know, this, to, to my mind, this man's telling the truth. So she said, okay, um, if such a thing exists, then show me some evidence. And by absolute luck, they managed to find a footprint. So she initially thought, you know, this must be something that's known about. There can't be a, a new creature like this. I just obviously just haven't heard about it. So she went back to UK. She spoke to um, uh, a number of experts. I think she contacted David Attenborough at one point, uh, who knew about the story, and said, "Yeah, I mean, there could well be something in this." But no one was really interested to go and look for it. And and people said, "You know, if you want to find out about this, then really you need to go there yourself." So she did. She went back in '93, did a bunch of interviews, and she didn't find. Um, any physical evidence, but she was fairly convinced by talking to a, um, a lot of people that the, the animal actually existed. So then she took six months off in 94 and went back to try and, you know, break the story, basically. And if she'd have failed in 94, she probably would have gone back and, and resumed her work as a journalist. But it was while, um, while she was there, I, I bumped into her and she reluctantly told me what she was doing there after a few days. I, I obviously um, I realized there was something interesting about her, but um, yeah, eventually told me the story, which as I said, I was uh, very skeptical about the reality of it. But um, I hung around and she invited me along into the forest and it was during one of those trips that um, she first saw the animal. And uh, shortly after, I saw it myself, um, a different animal on a different mountain. But um, we both got to see it within a very short period of time. Yeah, I, I want to get to that story soon, but I, I am also curious. What do you think it is about the Oring Pendek that prevents the scientific community from taking it seriously? It, it's so rarely seen. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very cryptic. The, the habitat there is extremely difficult. So it wasn't something that people saw very often, including local people. There's, um, people know about it, but very few people have seen it, uh, you know, relative to the number of people that, that go into the forest. So, I, you know, there just really wasn't that much evidence to follow up. Um, I don't think there was a, a real disbelief in it, uh, other than in, in the 1930s, the Dutch, I believe, put a reward on about 5,000 guilders, I think it was, for anybody that could, could come up with any physical evidence of the animal, because there were a number of Dutch planters that uh, claimed to have seen it. And um, they, they eventually got, you know, a bunch of uh, plaster cast footprints, all of which turned out to be from Sun Bear. There was... Um, uh, a famous hoax made from a, a, a monkey that had, had its tail cut off and shaved and its teeth filed down. 
but I think the, the scientific community just thought, you know, there's no evidence for this, so clearly it's, it doesn't exist. It's a, a mistaken identity or, or just bakery or, or folklore. So there was a, a paper written in 1932 by the then director of the Bogor Zoological Museum that pretty much closed the door on any further research. And I think anybody that was researching in Sumatra, I mean, not that many people have actually, but I think anybody that was doing that and heard about Oren Pendek would then, you know, when you looked into the, the history of it, you would come across this paper, which was fairly damning. And I think um, that was the end of it, really. And there was also a, um, a book of the footprints of the, the mammals of Western Sumatra that had a underneath the illustration for bear footprints. It said, you know, any any footprints that are claimed to be Oren Pendek are not there, Malay some bear. Uh, it didn't say uh, they've been confused with this and maybe something exists. It very categorically stated that um, there was no such thing as Oren Pendek. So I think um, those things combined, there was there was not much to follow up. And when you did try and follow it up, you came across these scientific dead ends. So it really shut the door on, on this. I know there's a lot of folklore and mythology that surrounds the creature, and I've heard some pretty colorful stories about its behavior and origins. Um, did you hear any folklore about the creature while you were there that you feel like could actually pertain to a real creature? Well, no, the interesting thing is that there's almost no folklore about this, um, which is a, a really good indicator of it actually being a real animal, in my, in, in my understanding. That the Sumatrans are obsessed with tigers, so there's an awful lot of folklore. You know, the shamans are all, um, when they, um, their spirit animals are all with tigers. They have an awful lot of lore about tigers, people changing into tigers, wear tigers. Um, village tigers that um, look after the um, the well-being of villages, tigers that help people lost in the forest. And I've spoken to these shamans and said, you know, why why is there no or appear to be very little folklore around Oren Pendek? And they said, well, it's just because we don't see it enough. With tigers, this is something that's very much a part of our daily lives. But with Oren Pendek, it's not. We might see it once in a lifetime, and it, it's something that hasn't really um, evolved in, into folklore. So the folklore that does, um, you, you do hear there, concerning bipedal-type animals, it, it, it's not referring to Oren Pendek. It's referring often to more something that's more akin to Homo floresiensis, so a human-type animal that lived in groups, could speak, rudimentary speech, but but not Oren Pendek. So no, there's not there's not an awful lot of folklore. Can you uh, can you tell us in as much detail as possible about your encounter with Oren Pendek? Sure. So yeah, it was, it was shortly after Debbie saw her animal on one mountain and she, she got immediately sick. So I went back to um, our house in the town and she skipped me off on a what I think was a fool's errand to an area she'd actually been before and found nothing. But I think she just wanted to get rid of me for a few days. So I went up there with my... I was on a volcano, but there was no water in this particular area, so no one was living on the volcano. So we set off about 5 o'clock in the morning to try and get up to the, the forest as early as we could. 
And just at the very edge of the forest, the farmers there were growing potatoes. So there was absolutely abutting onto the forest um, with these dry potato fields with the, um, the, the runnels with the potatoes planted in. And as I came walking up, quite quite a steep slope, but I noticed this very, very fresh footprint, which I thought was a human footprint. I called the guide over and said, you know, you told me that nobody lives up here because there's, there's no available water. So how come there's this absolutely fresh footprint? And he said, no, 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 no. That's our appendix footprint. And the odd thing was, although Debbie had seen the animal, I, I didn't, I was with her when she saw it, but I didn't see it. I still had trouble actually believing in it. So I was thinking, you know, no way can this be, you know, we just claim to have seen it on one mountain, we go to another mountain, we find footprints. But we looked around, we found more footprints. They weren't very clear because of the, the actual substrate of the soil, which was very dry. But we found a lot of potatoes that had been dug up and had been very freshly eaten. So there was no oxidization. They, they were still absolutely white. But a lot of marks of dentition, which shows um, some were canine marks, very uh, rounded canines, which later became important. And then we found um, a, a line of tracks which were heading directly along the top of the potato run onto the forest. So we followed those, we found at the edge of the forest where something had broken open a banana palm and eaten the pith. Then we found some arrowroot plants that had been pulled up and the roots had been eaten. And then a ginger which had been broken open and the pith eaten. So this was all in about 10 meters, these, these four different things, um, something that very freshly eaten. And as we came up to the edge of the forest, we heard some birds mobbing something. So I knew from you know, my, my childhood uh, in England, that when birds are behaving in this way, they discovered a, an eagle or an owl or, or something that they considered to be a threat. And we heard these, these, these two birds, clearly they were mobbing something. And then suddenly there was this enormous rah type sound, which is about only 15 meters from where we were standing. And I turned to the guide and said, you know, what the hell was that? And he began to look very pale and start shaking. I said, was it a bear? He said, no. So while we were trying to work out what to do, I then heard the, the birds slightly moving away. So it was clear that whatever was there was, was moving away from us. So I just said to the guide, go in, follow it, go behind it. And I sprinted along the edge of the forest for about 50 meters and, and then tried to cut, cut off the animal to try and get ahead of it. And almost, almost the moment I entered the forest, I saw about uh, maybe 15 meters away a banana palm sway. I, I knew something was coming, so I just ducked, I ducked down into the undergrowth. And probably seven meters from me, this animal, which was walking very, very fluidly on two legs, it was um, bipedal, upright, covered in uh, pale yellowish hair, quite short, glossy hair. It was looking backwards towards, obviously um, trying to listen to my guide that was behind, 
that had been following it. So its, it's face was turned away from me. So I saw the head, but I didn't get to see the face, which at the time I was very um, glad not to see the face. Um, so I saw it for just maybe two, two or three seconds, but very, very close. I didn't make any move. I had a camera around, around my neck. I didn't attempt to make a photograph because I, I was too close to the animal. And I thought, um, if it, if it knows, if it hears anything in terms of looks, we're in the kind of range where it might well attack. And the thing was, um, the, the name Oran Pendek actually means short person in, in Malay. So what I was expecting was, was not something as big as what I actually saw, which was in the region of about one and a half meters tall. It was also very, very well built. So no, there was no neck. The, the, the head fits very much into the shoulders, which were very, very broad and very... I, I didn't actually see muscle because of the hair. It's not like a chimpanzee where you see the, the skin through the hair. The hair was thick, but I could see that this was an extremely well-built animal. Um, very long, muscular arms as well. So it's something uh, um, I don't think you would have stood much of a chance against had it decided to charge. So I kept, I kept quiet. I watched it pass. Um, obviously, I had a an absolute carnival of thoughts and emotions going through my mind, you know, what I'd seen, it was, it was extremely shocking, it was a little bit frightening, I, I, was, I was in awe, but I, I really needed to speak to someone and explain what I'd seen, whether my guy then turned up, and he was motioning that it's gone this way, it's gone this way, and I said, I, I know, I've just seen it, uh, so then we followed it, and had I have followed it immediately, I, I probably would have got a very good view because it went into an area of forest that was quite open and it would have, um, down a slope, it traversed that. Had I followed it, I would have been above it and had a very, very clear view. But by the time we arrived, it had, it had gone through, we followed the footprints, a very clear trail of where it had gone. And because this is a, a volcano, there was... Um, you know, within every few hundred meters, there's um, these deep gullies, water runoff gullies. They're, they're dry, but they're about three meters wide, three meters deep. And the animal had got across that because it was vocalizing on the other side and had been mobbed by another bunch of birds. And I looked at the gully and thought, um, it would be difficult for us to cross it. And if we tried, it would have made a lot of noise. So I made the executive decision to, to go back um, tell Debbie what we'd seen and get her to come the next day in the hope that the animal would still be there rather than um, us trying to follow it and scaring it off. After that encounter, were you were you convinced that what you saw was the Oring Pendek? Um, was, there any, was there any doubt about what you had seen? Um, well, the interesting thing about my um, particular sighting was we started off with a footprint. We found food, items that showed very clear dentition. We heard three different vocalizations from the animal. So it made the first raw sound that it made. There was then two more sounds after that. And it, um, it continued vocalizing. It made four, five or so of the same vocalizations as it moved away. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that this was something new. 
something unknown. It was a, it was a biped. It was walking very very fluidly, unlike um, anything else I'd ever seen. I had seen orangutans previously in northern Sumatra walking on the ground, and it's, it's a very very different way that they actually move. So this animal clearly a habitual biped, clearly. Um, a different colour to anything else. But, I mean, there's just nothing really to confuse it with. So I don't have any doubt in my mind that uh, what I saw was something that's unknown. Whether it's uh, Oran Pendek, I mean, this is something, uh, um, it's a name that's given to an animal that people uh, occasionally see in Sumatra. Whether, you know, what, what is Oran Pendek, we don't really know. But, um, if there's one animal there, if there's two animals, three animals, we just um, alighted on that name. It's what people say. It, it, it just means short person in Malay. It's not a specific animal name. And um, if you go to different areas of Sumatra, they have different names for it. So it's the name we alighted on for, for this thing. Um, did it change your worldview to see another creature walking on two legs like a human does? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's difficult to put into words. Um, I, I mean, I, I've always been interested in these kind of things. I was always interested in natural history, and I also had a great interest in uh, paleoanthropology. And honestly, my first thought when I saw this was that it was Australopithecus. So uh, one of our very, very early ancestors, that it supposedly evolved on the African savanna. Um, I don't believe that now, but the reason I saw that at the time is because it, it was just so unlike any other of the great apes. And it's because of the way that it walked. Um, it was very, very clearly biped. So the thing is also when you see something that looks like a human being that, that clearly isn't, that comes with a whole glamour of, of creepy responses because it, it's almost like a monster. It's something which is why I said um, I was very happy at the time that I didn't see its face. If I'd have got to see that creature upright, walking like a person, had it have turned and faced me and it, I mean, what kind of face did, did it have? I didn't know. Whether it was a monkey-type face or whether it was going to be a human-type face. But I think... Um, that would have been just too shocking uh, on top of um, being a, a, a large-bodied biped. So I was quite happy I didn't see the face. Now I wish I had, because um, that sighting uh, at that distance was never repeated for me. When you read about the Oring Pendek, a lot of people's responses is that it's a misidentified orangutan or gibbon. Uh, can you respond to those explanations? Yeah, I, mean, I, I fully understand. It's like... Um, you know, it's the, the Occam's razor thing, the, the paucity of explanation. If you if you have a, a landscape with um, that has one large-bodied primate, then when people claim to see a large-bodied primate, it's more likely to be orangutan than something new. But you know, I have been I have been uh, a, a, a naturalist really my whole life. I know very clearly the difference between an orangutan. A gorilla, a chimpanzee. This is something that was very, very different. And the interesting thing, I mean, there, there was a paper written by a couple of uh, quite prominent um, researchers, uh, orangutan researchers, that claimed that it's 
it was an orangutan, or it is an orangutan, the footprints that we found were the handprints of an orangutan. But the interesting thing is these researchers didn't come and talk to us about our sightings. And this is what I've often found, is that most people are sceptical. And they come with that baggage of um, not wanting to believe and not really wanting to be disproved. But if someone honestly sits down and listens to what we have to say, or, or goes to Sumatra and listens to what local people have to say, then I think um, they generally come away believing that there's something to the story. It must be incredibly frustrating to see something that shocking, and yet the rest of the world doesn't take the creature seriously. Have you taken any steps since seeing it to push forward research or credibility in it? Well, yes, I've spent, I've spent the rest of my, my life since 1994 being lucky that. I mean, Debbie and I were extremely lucky in the fact that we, you know, we both had a sighting. We, we were both absolutely convinced of what we'd seen, and I think... Um, and I was a, my my passion and uh, uh, the description I could give was quite convincing at the time. It's maybe tarnished over the years, but at that time, I really thought we'd, we'd kind of cracked it. We'd, Debbie had seen it in one mountain, I'd seen it in another mountain. It clearly, there were more than one, well, obviously there was more than one animal, but we'd, we'd gone to two different locations and we'd managed to see it. And, you know, my feeling was that people had never seen it because they'd never bothered to look. And the fact that we'd looked, we had cracked it, we, we knew how to find it. So we went back to UK and we were extremely lucky and we had two quite august institutions listen to the story, believed us and supported us. And one of those was, was uh, Fauna and Flora International and the other one was the Natural History Unit, the BBC Natural History Unit. They both um, came on board to support the return trip, um, which is what we did. We went back in 1995 and tried to get some physical evidence for the animal. Um, we had a project supported by Fauna Flora International for three years. So Debbie and I stayed in Sumatra for those three years. During that period, we diversified the work we were doing to cover a lot more things in the, in the national park, and ended up, I ended up staying there for 11 years, and Debbie never left really. Um, although she's the focus of her work has become Sumatran tigers, not um, Brian Pendek. But I've continued um, as much as I can. So with uh, uh, camera trapping programs, um, I still, in fact, I'm just waiting to go to Sumatra now. So I've continued the search. Um, uh, it's actually, it's not frustrating to me that uh, people don't believe because I don't have any doubt myself and um, I, I really, um, when I meet people that, that adamantly don't believe, it actually gives me a little bit of a thrill to think that um, I have seen something that is unbelievable. Uh, there's no other animal you can really say that about. If I saw a blue whale or a snow leopard or a giant panda, they're all things you can pay on a tour to go and see. But um, with this one, you can't. So it, that does give me a great sense of, of personal pride, even though um, a lot of people don't believe it. The, the great frustration is not a personal one to me. It's a frustration for the animal. While, while no one believes in it, then we can't do anything to try and protect it. 
And that was the reason that I continued to look for it, was not to validate it for other people, because I, to be honest, I really didn't care too much about that, my, my own um, personal point of view. But I did think this would be a fantastic tool for us to push for the conservation of the rainforest. So often you hear people saying, you know, don't destroy the rainforest because we don't know what's in it. And I thought, you know, they're usually referring to frogs or maybe the next cure for cancer. But when it's something that, you know, in a sense is, is closer to human beings than any other creature, not necessarily genetically, but just in the fact that it's morphology, that it's a biped, then what else could not be in the rainforest if it can hide something like that until you know, the last years of the, the 20th century? And that's, so that's my frustration, is that um, we've lost an opportunity, I think, um, to uh, the tool for protecting the rainforest. If the orange pandek is real, I mean, there's just something kind of tragic about the animal. Um, this creature could potentially disappear before we even knew it existed, which is a, a kind of a horrifying thought, given that the most human-like creature on the planet. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned earlier the first thought that came to your mind was Australopithecus, but that later changed. Uh, what did that change to, or are you still unsure of what you saw? I'm not unsure of what I saw, but... Um the thing is, in, in biology, morphology doesn't really mean very much. So you can't necessarily look at something and think, because it's that shape, it's this. Um, I, I personally don't think it's related to orangutan. So what used to be the, the Pongi day, it's that now changed now, but that was a, at the time that was the family that, it, that included gorilla, um, chimpanzee and um, orangutan. And I've since been lucky enough to, to see chimpanzees in the wild and orangutans in the wild. This is something very, very, very different. And, I mean, interestingly, um, we were working with one Indonesian researcher who was very, very adamant that it was, a, was an orangutan. And at the time, um, in, in the 90s, the, 50, the, the 500 rupee note in Indonesia had a picture of an orangutan on the back of it. And we were, we were out one day interviewing a local that had seen Oren Pendek. And, and my Indonesian counterpart was, was pushing him to, to admit that it was an orangutan. And the guy got so frightened, and eventually my friend took out a, the 500 rupee note and said, look, did it look anything like this? And out of utter frustration, the witness said a line that I've said many, many times myself. Yes, it has a head, yes, it has arms, yes, it has legs. That's the only way in which it looks like an orangutan. So it's, it's a very, very different creature. You mentioned earlier that you still have plans looking for the creature. What are your future plans and what do you plan to do to capture evidence of the creature? Well, as a photographer, I was always hoping to get, and I, I specialised in camera traps. That's what my... my working life has really been since um, I first started using those, the, the natural history unit, BBC natural history unit, built me some, some units in the, in the mid-90s. But now, of course, um, thanks to American hunters, there's a whole slew of different off-the-shelf cameras you can buy. So I've specialised really going around Asia, photographing a lot of things that had never been photographed before. And 
Point Pendek is really my huge failure in that regard. As I've spent a lot of time camera trapping in Sumatra, I've got some very rare things, a lot of pictures of things for the first time, but I've missed getting Point um, Pendek. So as a photographer, I would like to get photographic evidence. But things have also changed greatly. Um, when I first started doing this, there was no digital. Now there is, um, it's, it's possible to fake stuff. So even if you had brilliant footage, um, it wouldn't necessarily convince everybody. And like every new discovery, you end up having to have some kind of physical evidence. But um, that's very difficult because of the, the rules in Indonesia now about removing any, anything to do with DNA or any physical material. You have to have um, research um, status to be able to do that, and that's extremely difficult to get, and, and more so with the, the new rules that have just come out in Indonesia. So really, I'm, I'm left with the photographic option, which... Um, wouldn't um, wouldn't clear up the debate. It would be some evidence, but it, it wouldn't necessarily be 100% proof. I know there was a surged interest in the creature after the discovery of Homo floresiensis. Yes. Uh, people thought there might be a connection between Orang Pendek and floresiensis. Do you think there's any merit to this idea? No. Uh, to my mind, there's absolutely no relationship to those two. I did go down uh, directly after that discovery. I went down to Flores to just take a look for myself. And then I, I worked on a, a documentary with a British crew. And I interviewed some people that claimed to have seen these things in Flores. And um, they were very convincing, I must admit. Um, I, I have trouble believing that they could have survived that long. But what they described was clearly very, very different than Homophoriensis is obviously it's a type of human. Iron Pendek isn't. It's a, that's a great ape. So I don't think there's any relationship with them at all. It's um, just a coincidence that uh, two smallish um, bipedal creatures were discovered in Indonesia. Other than footprints, is there any other compelling physical evidence that you know of? When Debbie, Debbie had her sighting, we collected a couple of hairs. The animal that she saw stepped over a falling log, and on that log we managed to collect some hairs. So that was back in um, 1994, and at the time it, it was about $13,000 to get a hair analyzed for DNA. Uh, at that time also, if the hair didn't have a medulla, so it didn't have any skin attached to the end of it, then you couldn't extract DNA from it. So the two hairs we collected at that time, they did go for analysis and, and nothing was found. If we had those same samples now, it would be very different. We collected hair um, in 1997 or so from um, some feces that we found. I had to go through it with a fine tooth comb and I collected the same kind of hairs, long, wavy, yellowish hair. That was also went for um, analysis at great cost. But again, no medulla, so no no results. Um, Adam Davis also 
I believe collected some hairs. I remember he showed me a footprint once that had a hair embedded in it. And I think they went for shaft analysis, which was actually a better thing to do um, in the absence of a medulla. And that, sh that showed that they were nothing that was known to be in the Sumatran rainforest. But other than that, um, I mean, it's a shocking paucity of, of any physical evidence. We have no bones. Uh, you know, we, we have footprints, but really they're kind of almost valueless um, in terms of proof because they're very easy to fake. They give us, they can give us an idea of the morphology of the orientated foot, which is um, seems to be quite different from a human foot. But in terms of evidence, they're you know they're they're, they're nothing more than a curiosity. So the answer is no. Um, in all this. Uh, all this time we've spent, we really don't have very much to show for it, unfortunately. Could you recount Debbie's experience in more detail? I, I bumped into her while she was looking for this, and she invited me along on one of her field trips. And she had a very, very good tracker. And we just seemed to be, every day going out, he was finding footprints, we were following them. So I suggested that maybe it would be better if we if we did find some, or thought an animal was near, we, we split up and did a kind of a pincer movement. Because I thought following it, we could do this for the rest of our lives. It's obviously going to be very aware of us in the forest, and, and there's not much chance of us ever seeing it. So the very next day, she said, OK, let's do that. We left camp, as, as usual, at 6 o'clock in the morning. And within an hour, we'd located... Um, what the guide said was, a, was, a, was an iron pen deck. It was being mobbed by um, monkeys. So we sent him round to try and get behind um, where the monkeys were. And Debbie and I sat really anywhere we could do an interlude because the terrain was, was not very friendly. But we just sat on, um, on a jungle slope. Um, I was sitting you know, maybe uh, three, three metres, four metres from Debbie. And uh, yeah, at the time I was, I was very sceptical and I, I honestly didn't believe there was anything to, to this story. But suddenly Debbie said, oh shit, and burst into tears. And it took a while for her to actually be able to tell me that she'd just seen this animal walk across the, the um, opposite slope. That was quite dense jungle, but we had a clear view of the, the opposite slope. So she had a similar view to what I had. It, 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 you, know, you never see anything for very long in the forest because it's too dense. But there was a clearing where there was a fallen log, which she saw it step over. Um, the animal she saw was smaller than the one I saw, and a slightly different colour. It was a reddish goldy colour. But again, a biped, hair-covered. Um, it didn't make any noise. But um, yeah, a biped moving, moving quietly and smoothly. You spent a lot of time in the rainforests of Indonesia. Um, could you talk a bit about some of the dangers deforestation is posing to wildlife there, uh, Orang Pendek included? Yes, yeah, so well, I've now been going to Sumatra for 25 years, so of course um, I've seen horrific changes in the amount of forests. Um, basically uh, a protected area there it's, it's, it's been the same thing it, it does in um, the west a protected area 
it's really a free-for-all for anybody that wants to, uh, especially in Indonesia now, they they have a, a quite a strong belief in human rights, so they the, the government actually discourages prosecution of anybody that's making farmland. So it's, it's a gradual kind of termite nibbling away of, of the, the forest edge. And it's the, the, the park we were working in, where we, we both saw on, on their Kuruntis of Black National Park, and it's a huge national park, but it has a, um, a border of something like 2,500 kilometers. So, of course, every part of that is being eroded by illegal farms. And the valleys, um, incursions up into the valleys, so you get these increasing areas of forest which become islands. And it's something like Oren Pendek, um, which is, it, it doesn't seem to have a, a set range. It's moving around all the time. So as, as forests get isolated and become um, you know, smaller and smaller islands, then obviously it's, um, it's no longer acceptable habitat for, for animals like that. Obviously, there's a, um, a, a bit of a decreasing population. It's harder for animals to move between areas to, to meet. Um, how they how they actually meet and mate, we don't have a clue. But but clearly, when um, forest is becoming fragmented, this becomes um, more of a challenge. What are some of the steps people can take to help slow down deforestation and preserve some of that natural environment? Uh, this, uh, this is a good question that um, many people have tried to solve and have failed. I mean, there's, there's been a um, huge amount of money spent on development projects in Crunchy to try and give people an alternative livelihood. But you have the problem of huge population growth in Indonesia. I think it was something like a hundred and... 90 million when I first went there, and, and now it's 280 million, something like this. So that's something, and all these people, they all need land. You know, most people in Sumatra, rural Sumatra, they will have a, a small farm which is carved out of the forest. Before the national parks were created, this wasn't a problem. People were just taking part of the, what was very, very abundant forest. Now, with so many people, so much clearance, and also clearance um, not just for personal use, but to sell. So some people make a living clearing forest and selling it to to people that live in the town. And then those people will pay farmers to, to look after it. So it's a, a huge stress. And unless you have the political will in Indonesia to protect these areas, which unfortunately you don't, because any any government that, that started enforcing protection of forests would would not be voted in, basically. So it's it's a very dire prognosis for the future of smart remote forests, unfortunately. Uh, we're running short on time, but I am really interested in hearing about your recent experiences in India. What was this creature you were looking for, and, and how did you learn about it? Yes, well, this was something. Um, Northeast India. There's a. I've worked a lot in um, in, in most areas of Southeast Asia, and there's Orin Pendek is one of the creatures um, 
one of these bipedal creatures that's described from Southeast Asia. But there's a whole bunch of others. I mean, the Yeti in uh, Bhutan and, and Nepal and China. There's similar stories from Myanmar and um, Assam. But there was a, one particular area of northeast India called Meghalaya, which is, um, it was closed for a long, long time because of um, rebel activity. Um, the area wasn't safe. I, I went there maybe uh, 30 years ago. I got special permission to go from the, the, the Indian government. And I, I had a, a brief trip there. But there's a, an animal there called Mandai Burung, which um, translates as first man. So um, I wanted to go and have a look and see if there was any uh, reality to those stories. So I, I just spent a month traveling around in um, Western Meghalaya, interviewing local people that claimed to have seen the animal. Uh, it's clearly, I was interested to see if it had any relationship to Warren Pendek, which it, it clearly doesn't. Um, what the people are describing there is much, much bigger. Um, you know, eight, eight to nine feet tall, black coloured, black skin, black hair, um, huge feet that um, 14, 14 and a half inches long. And it's uh, more similar to the North American Bigfoot inscription. But I, you know, I had some quite convincing stories from local people, but um, I didn't see any evidence myself. Have you looked anywhere else in the world for other Orang Pendek-like creatures? I mean, the the idea of a bipedal ape is a common story across the world. No, I'm, I, I mean, the thing is, it's, uh, it's very difficult to do. And uh, like I said, I'm, I, I do actually remain very, very skeptical about most of these things. I mean, I, don't, I can't be skeptical about Orang Pendek because I saw it. But, um, you know, I speak fluent Indonesian. I know the the area very well and I know that I'm not wasting my time on a wild goose chase because there's an animal there. Um, in the case in India, you know, I'm not so sure. I don't speak the language. So it becomes very, very difficult. Um, it's hard enough in Sumatra. So doing it somewhere else, uh, yeah, it, it becomes tantamount to impossible. So I've tried to to utilize the funds I have and the time I have to to try and crack the own pendek case rather than get diverted on um, trying to follow up things which I'm not certain exist. Do you believe the Orang Pendek could be a real creature? Let us know on our Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Terrara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Terrara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergi Cheramizanov.